I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. You know, singing that last song, Ruthann, that was a nice selection for Sunday, or for, um, yeah, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. But uh, I just noticed once again the centerpiece here. I don't know who put that together, but whoever did that, thank you for doing that. It adds a lot to the service and reminds us of the bountiful harvest that we do have, right? And so thank you for whoever did that. That, that adds a lot to this morning's service. Nice uh, image to re- as a reminder of that. So Romans chapter 6, we're going to finish what we started last week. And so I want to read verses 8 through verse 14. So if you have your Bibles open, we'll start reading at verse 8. And God's inspired and inerrant and sufficient word reads, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your body's parts as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. We thank you for the truths that we find there. We thank you for the compass that it provides for us to give us direction, gives us purpose and and helps us to be able to discern right from wrong. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that your spirit would illuminate this text uh, so that we can understand it, to be able to apply it to our life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Died to Live, uh, part two. We started uh, uh, this two-part series, I guess, if you want to call it that. It didn't start out that way, but that's what it ended up being. Uh, last week, last week by looking at two common philosophical ideologies, and we looked at two of them, and the first, obviously there's, there's many, but we looked at two common. The first was, was nihilism, meaning that it, there, nothing matters. You come from nothing, you are nothing, and you're going to nothing. Nothing matters. Life doesn't matter, you don't matter. And we also looked at another philosophical idea of called existentialism. Existentialism tells us that Uh, We don't get meaning from our life, but we give meaning to life, meaning that how you want your life to turn out. The meaning that you have in your life comes from within you. The meaning that you get from life or that you give to life is all about you making the right decisions and doing the right things. Both of those, though, do have their flaws, do they not? Because at the heart of each and every one of us, we want to know the what and we want to know the why. The what is life. We are living. We are here today. We are breathing on purpose and for purpose. And so we want to know why. Why are we living rather than not living? Why why have we been born rather than not to be born? We want to know some of those things. And so how we answer that why question will give meaning to our life, meaning and purpose to our life. And where do we go to find the answer to the why question? Well, as Christians, we know that we go to the scriptures uh, for uh, for our answers. 
And in the scriptures, what we find is two truths running throughout all of scripture, two great headings, if you will. One of them would be divine sovereignty, and right beside or under or over or on the same space as divine sovereignty, we see human responsibility. These two go hand in hand throughout all of scripture and throughout our life. And so last week we started in verse 8 with what I said, what, must, what we must believe about Christ. And what we must believe about Christ is if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. Now, that's a grand statement. If we have died with Christ, we will also live with Christ. And some of us that have been born into the text, if you will, that can go unnoticed or that can just go as a, yeah, so what? What's the point? Yes, I already know that. But think about what we say that we believe about Christ, that we have died with Christ and that we also live with Christ. I mean, that is a grand statement that we must flush out just a little bit. But that is what the Christian says, what we believe about Christ. And so today, moving on from verse 8, I want to start on verse 9 as we continue through this journey of died to live. And verse 9 is what we must know about Christ. We came from what we must believe about Christ, and now let's turn to what we must know about Christ. And we see it in verse 9 uh, of our text here today. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him, master over Jesus. And he starts out with knowing. Paul doesn't start out with, well, maybe you've heard, or maybe you know, or there's a possibility you might want to believe this, or this is one thought process. No, Paul starts out with knowing that Christ. This is a factual knowledge. This is not something that is up for debate. This is not something that is up for discussion. If you would try to turn into your Bibles to help solidify this point, I want to do so interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And so I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see where Paul lays out the fact of Christ's resurrection. And Paul is there talking to a church in Corinth, a church that is struggling through life, a church that, like any other church, has some dysfunctions within us because the church is filled up with people and we all have our issues, right? And so Paul is dealing with this church and he wants them to understand what they must know about Christ. And he starts out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. And he says, now I make known to you. Again, he's going to impart some knowledge upon them. Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive. This is not something they haven't received. He says, you've received this gospel in which you also stand. Not only have you received it, but you're standing upon it. And not only that, because you have been saved by it. If you hold firmly to the word, which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. You see this idea that Paul is laying out here that you do, you are saved by it. You do stand by it unless you have believed falsely, unless you have believed in vain. And then he goes on to verse 3. He's going to explain this a little bit further. And he says, for I handed down to you as of first importance. What I received, and this is what he received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
and that Jesus was buried and that Jesus was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. And then Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus also appeared to me. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that, listen, this is what we must believe. This is what we must know, and this is why we can be assured of it. And we can be assured of it because Christ has died according to the Scriptures. Paul points to the Scriptures as his evidence base. He says, you know this because it's what the Scriptures teach. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you also know this because don't take my word for it. Go ask all these guys. Go ask Peter. Go ask uh, uh, Cephas, Peter, go ask Peter, go ask all the other disciples, go ask these 500 other people that, are, that, that have seen him, though some, some are asleep, some have died, but, but a lot of them are still living. You can go ask them. Go ask his brother James and go ask the rest of the apostles. And then if you still aren't convinced, ask me, the great persecutor of the church, and look at the result of my life. That's what Paul is saying. This is what we must know about Christ. This is what we must believe about Christ. And so I ask you, do you have confidence that Christ has died for your sins? I mean, this is what the heart of the gospel is that Paul is asking. Paul is saying that you can be confident. You can stand firmly in what you believe. Do you stand firmly in that? Do you believe that Christ has died for your sins and that it is upon that that you can stand? Do you have that confidence? And if you don't have that confidence, what would it take? What would Paul have to write right here in 1 Corinthians 15 for you to believe? What scriptures would he point to? What people would he point to in your life as evidence as to why you can look to Christ for the answers to the why question? We see Paul moves on, and he says, Jesus having been raised from the dead. Obviously, this was a real physical rising from the dead, and he is never to die again. Paul says, he goes to 1 Corinthians 3, 18, where Peter says the same thing. For Christ also has suffered once, suffered for sin one time for all time, just as for the just for the unjust, so that we might, so that Jesus might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The other thing that Paul wants to, wants us to understand in our Romans text is that Jesus has died only one time. And I'll only ask you to turn to one other, uh, other text here this morning, and that would be in Hebrews chapter 9. Both of these texts are in your, in your outline. They're so important uh, to our faith. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author there writes this, and I'll start reading in verse 24, where the author there says, For Christ, for Jesus, did not enter the holy place made with hands, that is just a mere copy of the true one. But Jesus entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that Jesus would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Jesus would need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the age, 
he has been revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Paul gives, or the author here of Hebrews, some say it's Paul, I don't know. The author of Hebrews says, uh, it gives an explanation that we know in verse 27, and just as it is destined for people to die once, and we know that, we can point to that, we can see that, so too, and after this comes the judgment. Verse 28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear sin for many, will appear a second time for salvation without any reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. You see, Paul and also the author of Hebrews are, are, are making this point very clear that Jesus has died one time for all time. 10.10, Hebrews 10.10. By this we will have sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. It is not a sacrifice that happens over and over. It is a once and done event. Verse 9 ends then with death is no longer master over Jesus. And this is why Jesus can say in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. There's no, you don't go through God because what, what God, what nature reveals about God. You don't go through God through some dream that you had. You don't go through God through some event or some actions that you take. You only come to God through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way but through Christ. And therefore, for those who have died with Christ, death is no longer master over him either. Just as death is no longer master over Christ, so death is no ma longer master over you either. This is both a spiritual and a physical death. This is a spiritual death and a physical death that we must understand is being spoken of here. And so what we believe and what we know about Christ helps us answer the why to the what with confidence and with intelligence. What gives meaning to our life? What gives meaning to your life? We find them in Scripture, and we find it through our Creator. Well, it's what we must believe, it's what we must know, and now it's also what we must understand. What must we want to understand about Christ? In verse 10, we see there where Paul continues, we see he's continuing this line of thought with the, with the word for, carrying forward what came before it. For the death that Jesus died, he, Jesus, died to sin once for all time. But the life that he lives, that Jesus lives, he now lives to God. For the death that Jesus died, again, Paul is making this very clear, this was a physical death. There's one who say, want to say that Jesus didn't physically die. Jesus was passed out or knocked out or something, and he was revived. No, it was a physical, actual, real death, and he died to sin. Not his own sin, but the sin of us that he took upon himself. That is what he died for. The sin of the believer, Jesus died for. And he did it only one time. It was a once for all time that he died for these sins. And this connects us right back to verse 8 we had just read. He is never to die again. And again, this points us to our Hebrews chapter 9, 24 to 28 text, which you can see as the author of Hebrews is transitioning out of the Old Testament, out of the Old Covenant, and into the New. No longer do we live under the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament. We live under the New Covenant in the New Testament. We live under the new command, and that is where Jesus 
has gone into the temple once for all. No longer do we have to go back and offer sacrifices over and over again. No longer do we come to the Lord's table thinking that Christ is present there. In fact, um, some want to believe that. I want to read a quote here because it just flies against. And it's important to know the what and the why. And sometimes the nuances can be lost, but it is so important. In the book, The Faith of Millions, uh, John O'Brien, he's a Catholic priest, and he explained the procedure of the Mass like this. And he writes that when the, per, when the priest pronounces the tremendous words of the consecration, he reaches up into heaven and he brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon the altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of the monarchs and empires. It is a power that is greater than the saints and the angels, greater than that of the seraphim and the cherubim. Indeed, it is even greater than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest comes, brings Christ down from heaven, renders him present on the altar as the eternal victim for our sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks in low, Christ the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. This is why it is so important that we understand the what and the why. Not all way leads to Christ. Not all religions lead to Christ. We must understand what the scriptures teach and why they teach that. Christ has come once for all time, not again over and over. We don't have to go through a penance process. We don't have to go through a process of confessing our sins to be saved again. That is not what Paul is saying. Christ has died once for those who believe on him, and it is over. That is what he is teaching in this text. And we must not mince words when it comes to this. We must be straight. We must be forward no matter how hard it may be. But the life, he says, that Jesus lives. He doesn't live it for man. He doesn't live it for us. He lives it for God. Jesus is not obedient to anybody's command. Jesus is obedient to the Father. In 1 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus, in him. Everything that we have in Christ Everything that we can say, the what and the why, is because of Jesus, because of what he has done. It's what we must believe. It's what we must know. It's what we must understand. And now it's what we must consider. Look at verse 11. It's what we must consider. In verse 11, Paul continues, so you too. You see, he set up the example he set up the formula. He set up exactly what Christ has done. And now he turns to us. And he says, so you too consider yourselves to be, to be dead. And I might point out that so you too consider is a command. And it is the first command that Paul has given us now in this letter to the Romans. And this word consider. This word consider is an accounting term. It, it, it is a way of keeping the ledger. It is a way of keeping record. We know that 
that, that Paul is very forensic. He's very, uh, um, he's very lawyerly-like, if you will, in his way of laying things out. And this word consider, he is challenging us to consider our accounts. Check out your accounts. Go through the list of the do's and the don'ts. Go through the ways that you lived your life. How do they stack up against the Bible? How do they stack up against the commands of God? And if we look back to our seventh verse, we're there. We've seen that we have been acquitted from our sins, that we have been acquitted from them. We are no longer guilty in them, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for the one who has died is freed, is acquitted from sins. Dead to sin, but alive to God. No longer living in sin, but now you are living and we are living for God. Not because of what we've done, because of what Jesus has done. We don't live to God because we are in church this morning. We don't live to God because we have gone to a Bible study. We don't live to God because we can, we can write the whole book of the Bible out in whatever language we want to write it out. No, we live for God because what Jesus has done on our behalf and on your behalf, if you are indeed a Christian here this morning. It is only because of Jesus that anyone can live for Christ because the death is no longer master over Christ. So too, death is no longer master over you. Do you hear what Paul is saying? I mean, do you believe what Paul is saying? He's saying just as Christ, just as Jesus will never die again for the sins of the people, so too the people will never die that spiritual death because of their sins. There is nothing hanging over your head. There is nothing hanging over the head of a Christian. Sin is dead to you. Sin is dead to the Christian. There is no do this. There is no do that. No, there is none of that. Your records. You are dead. The sin, alive to God, not because of your actions, but because of Jesus. It is Christ alone that we can be that bold this morning and make that claim. And that is the divine sovereignty that we see throughout the scriptures. It is in Christ alone that anyone is saved. And now let's look at the other side. Let's look at what else the scriptures teach. What else does the scripture teach? The scriptures teach human responsibility. That doesn't give us a license to live any way that we want to live at all. Look at 12 and 13a. In verses 12 and 13a, as we transition from the sovereignty of God to the human responsibility, we see the negative prohibition. Look at verse 12 with me. In verse 12, it says, therefore. See, Paul is just summing up with the point that he has just made. You are dead to sin, therefore sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Therefore, brings forward all of what he has said, and because you are dead to sin, do not let sin reign. Sin no longer reigns, and you must, and I must. This is the human responsibility. We must root that sin out of our life. Those things that still trip us up, we must battle against them. We must root those out of your life and out of my life. The word reign, that, that is a 
um, that, that, that word there would be descriptive of a king. So as a king rules over the people, so sin has ruled over the person, but not the Christian. Sin is no longer our king. That's past tense. Sin called all the shots, but no longer. You are dead to sin. You're dead to sin, but listen. The lust of the flesh, it is still present, is it not? And it can be strong, can it not? It must be fought against. That is the human responsibility. Sin will continue to desire you and I, maybe even more so for the Christian, even though we are dead to sin. We see it in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Where we have that famous story there of Cain and Abel, right? Sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. There is a role and there is a part that we have to play to live our sanctified life. And we must do battle against it. Verse 13a, Paul again makes it quite clear with this command. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. This word instruments, that's, a, that's any implement especially of wickedness or of war. He's looking at this, this as an instrument that we're using for unrighteousness. And I might add, if we don't feel this war within, if we don't feel this battle within, if we don't feel the tension of dead to sin and yet sin still battling against us, maybe we need to ask why. Maybe we need to ask why we do not feel this battle and this warring that is within. A follower of Jesus will indeed feel the battle against the flesh and against the spirit that is still alive and well Though it will not defeat us unto eternal destruction, yet for in this life we must continue to battle. Paul gives us a positive presentation in verse 13b where he says, but present. He's saying, don't let sin reign in your bodies, but present yourself. This is to offer up. This is a sacrificial term. Just as Jesus died a sacrificial death, so are we. Romans 12, 1, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your, which is our spiritual service of worship. This is how we worship, is by presenting ourselves to God. And then uh, verse 14, I'll end here because the text ends, right? Verse 14, listen, this, 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 this is our hope right here. And this is the spiritual explanation. For sin shall not master over you. This is a statement of fact. This is a statement of promise. For you are not under the law. Being under the law is to be condemned by the law. Since no one can live up to the standards set by the law. We don't live under the law, but we live under grace. Grace reigns. Grace is the ruler of the Christian's life, not sin, but grace. Last chapter, 512, as sin reigned in death, so too grace will reign to eternal life. This does not give us a license to sin. That's what Paul is battling, and that's what we must battle. The idea that if we are saved, if we are reigned, if we are freed from sin, if we are eternally secure, I can just do whatever I want. That is not what the text teaches. 
Grace convicts of sin. Grace convicts us of a sin. doesn't give us a license to go on to sin. And so how do we guard against sin? How do we guard against this? This is the human response. How do we guard against this? We could ask the question of which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the mind or the eyes? Which came first, the mind? We must guard both. First, we got to guard the mind. Emotions cannot be trusted. Emotions cannot be trusted. Did you hear? Emotions cannot, the goosebumps cannot be trusted. Emotions cannot be trusted. Philippians 4, 8. Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellence, anything praiseworthy, think about these things. This is what we must measure our life against or upon. Six times Paul says whatever. Think about these things. Think about the whatevers. True. Honorable, right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence. Think about these things. Emotions cannot be trusted. We all have emotions. We want to experience the highs and the lows of life, obviously. But our emotions must always be tested against Scripture. That's how we guard the mind. We also must guard the eye. John, 1 John 2.16, you know, for all that is in the world, all that is in the world, John says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from God, but it is from the world. All these things that want to play against our, on our emotions, that want to invite us, that want to tell us this is how we have the good life. John is saying, as an old man by the time he wrote First John, nope, nope, those are all things of the world. That's how we got ourselves in this mess, isn't it? In Genesis 3, 6, right, where the woman, the person, I'd rather say the person, because, hey, you were there, and you did the same thing she did. Adam did the same thing she did. When we saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, we seen those same things, and we came to a reason as to why we should have it. Our emotions overcame us as to what our mind and our eyes seen. The eye saw, the flesh wanted, and the mind went to work. The eye saw, the flesh wanted, and the mind went to work. And that is still the dilemma today. What our eyes sees, our mind wants, and I don't know about you, our flesh wants, and I don't know about you, but my mind is my best salesman. When I was a salesman, <laughs> person can sell themselves. You just got to give them enough information. They will talk themselves into the purchase. That's what you and I do so often. This is what we must fight against. The flesh will justify, to justify the flesh, the mind will go to work. So it's focus plus the diary equals something, right? It's a little formula I came up with some time ago, right? The focus Plus desire equals something. We all have a focus. We all have a desire. What we do with that combination equals the something. Equals not necessarily uh, the, the, uh, everything that happens in our life, but they will certainly help dictate the outcome of that 
And so I want to leave you with verse 14. It's the last verse of our text today, and it is the key. For sin shall not master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. You're no longer living under the old covenant, but you're not living under the, the new covenant. You're dead to sin. The lie. The lie is that you're not good enough. The lie is that I'm not good enough, and that is true. But you don't live under the law, do you? So when Satan wants to get into your head and say, you're not good enough, look how often you keep messing up. Hey, don't come discouraged. <laughs> but praise God that you're not living under the law. You are living under grace. And that is the truth. And that is how we answer the why as we look at our life. And God, what are you asking of me? Why am I living rather than not living? What is the purpose? We go to the scriptures and we live faithfully knowing that we're not perfect. And sometimes because of our imperfections will keep us living defeated. No, we're not living under sin. We're not living. Sin doesn't control us, doesn't govern our life. We live under grace. Father, I pray that we can wrestle these two things together within our minds and understand that you are indeed sovereign, that you have created all things and you have purposed all things. And yet there is a part that we play. There is that human responsibility that is there. I pray, Lord, that we won't become defeated by the failures of our life. But I pray that day by day, we can live victoriously through the, through the battles that you have won, through the grace that you have given us. And day by day, we can become stronger and stronger with you and further and further away from our fleshly sin. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would lead us, that you would direct us. That if there's somebody here this morning who is wrestling and who is discouraged because of the sin within their life, I pray, Lord, first and foremost, that they would confess, confess that sin to you. And if they have not surrendered their life to you, that they would do that. And then secondly, Lord, if they, have, if they are your son or your daughter, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the spirit of grace, knowing that they don't live under the law, but they live under grace. I thank you in Jesus' name.